This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And let's offer a snapshot of women in photography. A portrait of women's contributions to the field of photography, Caroline. Filtering the knowledge for you. This won't be an Instagram. Wait, okay, I don't have a pun for Instagram. <laughs> it's too bad. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about women in photography, which is a huge subject, but we're going to offer some historical highlights and also talk about gender and photography today. More behind the lens, not stuff so much in front of the camera in terms of what people are taking pictures of, but talking about the women behind the camera. So... Let's go back in history to 1839. Yeah, Frenchman Louis Daguerre perfects his daguerreotype, the world's first form of photography. And women were involved from the get-go. But let's talk a little bit more about the technology. So in 1888, we have the introduction of the mass-marketed Kodak box camera. And part of marketing this Kodak camera and this Kodak technology was the Kodak Girl. In 1893, the Kodak Girl appears in the company's national advertising, a character embodying independence and travel. And the whole Kodak Girl thing was so significant for women in photography at the time, in the same way that we talked about in the podcast recently on secretaries of how typewriters were initially marketed to women. It was this brand new technology and Kodak was like, you know what? Women would love this new handheld easier to use camera. And their advertising images showed women shooting pictures at home, out with friends, having a great time just snapping their old timey photographs. You know, you mentioned the secretary episode in the typewriter and I actually was thinking the same thing as I was reading this stuff. Um, But in regards to a new industry developing, so there was no precedence for it as far as what gender it was aligned with. Because, you know, obviously we talked about in the secretary episode how it was new, the typewriter was new, and so women could just get into those jobs. It wasn't considered a male pursuit. It was kind of the same with photography. Yes, there was technology, and and you were outside, and these were two things that were not typically associated with women. But as the photography industry really got going, I mean, there were a ton of women who got involved. Yeah, and in 1900, when Kodak released its first brownie camera, which was lightweight and more inexpensive, uh, this also revolutionized things for women. And I like how uh, Kodak advertised it by saying, there's a new pleasure in every phase of photography, while showing a, a woman having lots of pleasure 
holding a brownie camera. Just carry it around. Yeah. Like when hipsters wear fake glasses. Uh huh. Like that's women just carrying brownies around. I'm going to start carrying around a, a <laughs> 1900 brownie. Yeah, yeah, sure. Who needs an iPhone and Instagram when you have a camera that won't work? My thoughts exactly. Yes. All right. So, you know, we're talking about women being outside and and following different uh, hobbies and things. In the mid to late 19th century, we get bicycles and bicycle clubs and then photography clubs and photography bicycle clubs. Yeah, I love this. In the mid-1890s, the whole combination of cameras plus bicycles plus the emergence of the new woman who is more emancipated because she's riding a bicycle and she's taking pictures of things outside that she sees is like this this huge uh, craze for a bit. And it seems a little dangerous because I can imagine that wielding a camera while riding a bicycle. Hopefully they stop. Yeah, I, w- I assume that they stopped. But still, it was kind of a sign of the times, though, that yeah. women were wielding this new technology and getting around on their own on bicycles. And people who were debating it at the time were saying, like, well, it seems a little risque, but I guess it's a it's an acceptable form of women getting their exercise. And photography in general exploded. I mean, ever since, uh, you know, Daguerre perfected the daguerreotype, studios were popping up every. Everywhere. Yeah, especially out west. Uh, according to foundsfsanfrancisco.org, uh, photography became an emancipator of women out on the western frontier. And a lot of times these women would go out there following husbands, brothers, fathers, and pick up the trade from the men in their lives and continue to work the studios. So it really wasn't... Weird. I mean, it was like, okay, well, it's weird that there's a woman out here on the frontier, but it wasn't necessarily weird that a woman would be working a, uh, at a photo studio. So women were involved in photography, like we said, from the very beginning, and particularly out west during the gold rush. They worked in all sorts of related activities, not just shooting the actual photos. They worked as studio photographers, traveling photographers, proprietors, gallery owners, retouchers, colorists, and photo mounters. And they also joined the swelling ranks of amateur art photographers. And these women who worked particularly as like colorists and retouchers could actually make a lot more money than women could in other traditional female roles at the time. In the same way, again, echoing that secretary podcast right. in how early typists were earning a lot more money than they could say as garment workers, which mm-hmm. was one of the most common ways for women to earn money outside of the home. Uh, but in the West, uh, which was mostly dominated like by, by men who were out there for the gold rush from 1850 to 1900, there were 77 working female photographers and 205 women earning a living in related trades, along with 52 women who were documented as amateur or fine art photographers, which sounds like a small group of women. But considering their proportions in relation to the, uh, you know, the, the gold rush population was very sizable. Yeah, and one woman who advertised her services out there was uh, Julia Shannon, who in 1850 put an ad in the San Francisco Alta newspaper, Notice, daguerreotypes taken by a lady. Lady is capitalized. Those wishing to have a good likeness are informed that they can have them taken in a very superior manner and by a real live lady, too, in Clay Street, opposite the St. Francis Hotel at a very moderate charge. Give her a call, gents. 
Yeah, and I can imagine that Julia Shannon did quite well for herself because she probably emphasized the fact that your picture will be taken by a real live lady because there were not many real live ladies around in Gold Rush, California. Right, you've been panning for gold all day. Come in and see a lady. But why, Caroline, were women able to pursue photography In these early years, it wasn't just because of the Kodak girl. Um, It's it's that whole fact of the technology being brand new and therefore not gender segregated yet. Yeah, and there was a lack of established schools, basically, that could deny them admittance. So it's like definition by negative. You know, there was... Nobody to say no, so they just got involved. And, you know, like I said, a lot of them worked in family businesses and inherited the trade from a husband or a father. And it really became uh, the case that photography studios were one of the first businesses that were okay for women to own and run. And in the West in particular, in this, uh, you know, this frontier environment, it's interesting that photography became acceptable and even desirable for women working in, uh, say, San Francisco's photo industry because social critics at the time argued that adventurous women needed a suitable occupation like being a studio photographer uh, that offered higher wages so that they wouldn't end up in a life of vice. Keep women busy <laughs> or else they will end up selling their bodies. God, them. that always happens. Every time I'm bored. It's true. Every time I'm bored. So by 1890, there were 141 documented women working in the photographic industry. And by 1900, women composed over 25% of America's professional registered photographers. But just because women were wielding the camera and, you know, exploring this new technology did not mean that it was necessarily easy for women to sell their photos, particularly for the ad industry in the early 20th century. Because in terms of taking portraits, doing studio photography or amateur or fine art photography, uh, women were really, you know, finding their stride. But in advertising, that was something that was already an entrenched male-dominated industry. Yeah, in the early 20th century, agencies for selling photographs, according to Jermaine Kroll, seem to have been reserved for men. However, the increase in advertising in Germany in particular in the late 1920s and early 1930s made it possible for women to make it in the field. Uh, the writer lists Ellen Auerbach and Gret Stern, who were praised for their, quote, inborn womanly instinct for the delicate nuances of textiles. Which sounds like a whole lot of benevolent sexism, saying, oh, you're so good at this because you are a woman. You're so good at knowing what cloth looks like because you're empathetic. But by that same regard, too, as women start making strides in more of the business side of photography, it still took a while for them to be taken seriously. Uh, From the 1940s on, there were gains in advertising, fashion, and publicity photography. And in a 1945 summary of photography-related opportunities for women, one commentator urged women to earn, quote-unquote, pin money by supplying magazines with pictures of domestic subjects at between $2 and $5 a print. And speaking of the $2 to $5 per print, 
again, same as with uh, secretarial work around the same time, even though those kinds of jobs were allowing women to earn more wages than they would in other industries, they were still being paid about half as much as men doing the same thing. Right. And another commentator on this uh, 1945 summary of job opportunities for women photographers it gets worse than saying, well, they can get a little extra money for their baubles and things. Uh, another guy dismissed women as a handy photo gadget for their photographer husbands. So they're just like an accessory. Yeah, that is uh, one thing that photo historians will point out is that for even the more recognized male photographers of the era, they had, you know, often wives with them who were traveling and helping them develop their films, set up their shots, doing all of this very integral work. Um, but during World War II and that manpower drain, as a lot of men left their jobs to go fight, Female photographers got improved access to especially women's magazines such as Better Homes and Gardens, House Beautiful, House and Garden, and McCall's. And after the war, commissions were typically given to women on other women and on minority groups, topics that editors considered less important. And that question of are women relegated to shooting women's interests and in domestic related subjects is something that we'll talk about today because it's a debate that is still going on for women in photography in 2013. Yeah. Well, so do you want to talk about some early pioneers before we get into the gender discussion? Let's do it. Let's do it. Lady Clementina Howarden is one of Britain's first female photographers. This is coming from her profile in The Telegraph. She started shooting in 1857, and in the 1860s, some of her images that she shot of her daughters were considered to be some of Britain's first fashion shoots. Yeah, she often shot um, her daughters Isabella Grace, Clementina, and Florence Elizabeth in romantic and sensual poses. Uh, she had pretty iconic set dressings that were usually covered with gossamer curtains, a freestanding mirror, a small chest of drawers, and Empire Star wallpaper. So she definitely developed a look. But even though uh, the the look might seem kind of commonplace, you know, you're thinking, oh, curtains and a mirror, no big whoop, her themes were highly progressive for the time. And they included, as reported on, on in the Telegraph, identity, otherness, the doppelganger, and, here we go, female sexuality, which, for a Victorian era female photographer... Pretty progressive stuff. Yeah, in 1863 and 1864, she won silver medals from the Photographic Society, and she had admirers, including Lewis Carroll and photography specialist Francesca Spickernell. Um, in recent times, has said that the photography uh, recognition she received was a tremendous achievement. She said most photography was very masculine and mostly architectural, so these elegant feminine shots really stood out at that time. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halo. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use arches and halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. They have eight color shades to choose from, everything from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. 
everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. They have an amazing range of products too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. And while we're under a quarantine, I will say HelloFresh has so many recipes. It's been wonderful because it gets me out of my rut and I'm able to try new recipes instead of my same old, same old. And they offer contactless delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family so you don't have to have those stressful meal planning and grocery store trips. Even better, HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients means there's less prep for you and less food waste. So if you're ready to try some of the delicious food from HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. That's HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off and free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. Now, a contemporary of Howarden's was Julia Margaret Cameron, and she's been highly praised, more so by contemporary critics than her uh, critics at the time. She received her first camera, I thought this was funny, when she was 48 years old in 1863, and her kids essentially like moved away and were like, here, Mom, have a camera to keep <laughs> yourself entertained. And we all know what happens to women who aren't occupied. Oh, yeah, that's right. Miss Cameron might have otherwise ended up on the street. Uh, but she was deeply religious, well-read, and eccentric, and had some pretty famous friends, such as Charles Darwin, Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, and Robert Browning. And Cameron immediately started taking all sorts of pictures, especially portraits and figure studies on literary and biblical themes, which was something that was unprecedented. And she quickly became one of the most highly admired Victorian photographers. Yeah, she was a very quick learner. Within a year and a half, she'd sold 80 prints to the Victorian Albert Museum. But she also went about, in an entrepreneurial fashion, rapidly copywriting her work, exhibiting her work, and she even established her own two-room studio. But she did get snubbed, as I said, from some of her critics at the time. In the Photographic Journal in 1865, someone commented that Mrs. Cameron exhibits a series of out-of-focus portraits of celebrities. We must give this lady credit for daring originality, but at the expense of all other photographic qualities. And not surprisingly, such criticism infuriated Cameron, but she pretty much got the last laugh because, for instance, a lot of our information about her is coming from the website of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So she certainly put her stamp on art history at large. That's exactly right. Moving forward just a little bit, we have Frances Benjamin Johnston, who's one of America's first and foremost women photographers. She trained in Paris in art and in photography at the Art Students League in D.C. and opened her own studio around 1890. And what really helped her out is Johnson's family's social status that gave her access to the first family and leading Washington political figures, 
She actually, that helped her launch her career as a photojournalist and a portrait photographer. Yeah, for instance, uh, thanks to a letter of introduction from uh, Teddy Roosevelt, no big deal, Johnston boarded Admiral Dewey's flagship and interviewed him en route to the Philippines, which, I mean, this is going on in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and Johnston was, you know, a pretty pioneering woman in general to be hanging out on a ship like that. And there's this great, uh, iconic picture that she took. It's a self-portrait of her, and she's sitting in a chair hunched forward and she has her skirt pulled up to reveal her petticoat, Ooh. which is very risque at the time. I want to say she's smoking a cigarette too and she just, it's a very masculine pose, but you mm-hmm. can just tell from it that she gave no hoots <laughs> about what people thought of her. No hoots were given. And in 1900, Johnston was chosen as one of two American women delegates at the International Congress of Photography, where she spoke out on behalf of women photographers and displayed pictures from 30 female colleagues around the U.S. Yeah, and she was really promotional of women getting into photography. She wrote a series of articles, for instance, in the Ladies' Home Journal, and uh, there was one 1897 article she wrote called What a Woman Can Do with a Camera, in which she talks about the qualities that you need to be a solid photographer, and she says the woman who makes photography profitable must have, as to personal qualities, good common sense, unlimited patience to carry her through endless failures, equally unlimited tact, good taste, a quick eye, a talent for detail, and a genius for hard work. And I think that that advice is probably still uh, the advice that would be given to women looking to pick up the camera today. But the thing is, and and Johnston's story points to one of the reasons why we wanted to highlight women in photography, is that even though at the time she was this very important pioneer and had a pretty high public profile. The first significant monograph of her work didn't come around until 1970. She's one of many female photographers who were making great strides during the time, but who have been pretty much ignored in uh, photo history up until recent decades. Yeah, one woman who made a lot of waves was Margaret Burke White, who's actually one of the most famous photojournalists of the 20th century. And she has a saucy quote, If anybody gets in my way when I'm making a picture, I become irrational. I'm never sure what I'm going to do, only that I want that picture. And so she was born in the Bronx in 1904 and began work after college as a commercial photographer. But she made rapid exponential strides later in life. And in 1929, she became the first photographer for Fortune magazine. And in 1936, a black and white photo of hers made the cover of the first issue of Life magazine. Yeah, it was an image of the construction of the Fort Peck Dam, which was a public works administration project to build the largest earth dam in the world during the Great Depression. And in getting that gig, she was the only female Life magazine staffer. And she invented the photo essay for the magazine, and her work became very famous at the time. And she began 
as a commercial photographer documenting the achievements of corporation and then applied that dramatic style that she honed with industrial and architectural subjects to photo essays in places all around the world, including Germany. She actually took pictures uh, from one of the uh, concentration camps that was being liberated at the time. And those pictures, I mean, just shocked audiences around the world. Um, she also took pictures in the Soviet Union. She was, I think, the first Western photographer to go to the Soviet Union. Uh, she also documented the Midwest during the Dust Bowl and, and you know, took pictures of these uh, these harrowing pictures of families who were suffering at the time. And she was known for her fearlessness in doing all of this. Yeah, she was definitely no shrinking violet. Uh, she was the first female war correspondent and the first to be allowed to work in combat zones during World War II. Yeah, and I wish that there was some way, this is an audio podcast, and so <laughs> trying to describe photography in a very meaningful way is is a bit challenging. I wish there was some kind of visual, maybe with Google Glasses, maybe we could <laughs> see a slideshow right now of all of this photography. Um, and there are so many more important female photographers that we aren't even able to touch on in depth. Uh, I mean, there are women like Dorothea Lang, Tina Bedotti, Imogen Cunningham, Diane Arbus, Helen Levitt, Annie Lee. Leibowitz, et cetera, et cetera. And those are only a few of the women that we ran across, but we only had time to offer, like we said, a snapshot of women's photography. Um, but we really want to now dig into the issue of gender because we've established that women in photography history have remained underrepresented, even though you have, you know, the Margaret Burke Whites, but she, and I would say in today's terms, someone like Annie Leibowitz or even like Cindy Sherman, uh, you know, we have these big names, but it's just a handful of them. And some wonder whether the industry still remains male dominated because uh, we've tried to kind of go back and correct the record and uh, give women their due. But there's still more progress that needs to be made. And as long as women have been in photography, women have also been involved in trying to draw recognition to their female colleagues in the industry. This starts really early. In 1889, Catherine Weed Barnes, a New York amateur photographer, petitioned for the Special Photography Awards for Women to be Eliminated. She said, and I might, you know, that might seem counterintuitive, but she says that if the work of men and women is admitted to the same exhibition, it should be on equal terms. And that is a question that does come up with not just in photography, but you can name any other industry. It's this question of whether calling out women for doing work in a specific field kind of undercuts uh, progress because are we saying that, oh, well, this is wonderful photography, by women. Right. Or should we just say, as Catherine Weed Barnes would, would advocate for, oh, what a wonderful photograph. And it doesn't matter. But the question is then, does it matter? I mean, in the 1960s and 70s, in the wake of feminist political action, gender absolutely mattered. Uh, there was a newfound interest that sprang up in women's photography, both contemporary and historical. And some feminists sought to resituate the work of women photographers within that larger history of photography and rescue women photographers who had disappeared from the historical record. So you probably did, for that reason, see things like that 1970 monograph of Francis Benjamin Johnston's work. And so in, in that regard, you can argue that, yes, having exhibitions that focus solely on work produced by women 
is important because of a legacy of sexism. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not that you look at a photo and you say that was taken by a woman or that was taken by a man. I guess it doesn't matter if a great photo was taken by one or the other. However, we can't forget that there are very important women contributing to the field. Like that, I think that matters more than knowing that a photograph was taken by a woman or a man. Right. It's more of that educational aspect. And that's why, you know, there, there was a movement in the seventies to, to highlight that kind of art. For instance, in 1975, there was at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, an exhibition called Women of Photography, a historical survey with 50 women photographers, uh, in 1979. The International Center for Photography sponsored Recollections 10 Women of Photography, which was partially funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. And it was around this time, too, in the 70s and moving into the 80s that media savvy artists like Barbara Kruger and Cindy Sherman did a lot of work to undermine the authority of the male gaze and commercialism and all that stuff. For instance, Kruger's Your Body is a Battleground. She actually uh, interpreted a lot of photography like advertisements to sort of undermine the way that media looked at women at the time. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time to delve into feminist photography, but they definitely did spring up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and a lot of it was more political and examining like the women's uh, female body and the whole thing of the male gaze and sort of playing with all of those concepts, sort of infusing feminism with Photography. And uh, speaking, though, of Cindy Sherman, I think it's pretty notable that in 2011, she sold the most expensive photograph in history. It was a 1981 self-portrait called Untitled, mm-hmm. and it sold for almost $3.9 million. Jeez. But in response to, oh, you know, someone's buying this female-produced piece of art, what does this mean? And essentially, art critics were like, it just means that art is funny money. You know, you, right. you just plunk down a lot of money. There's a weird kind of competition among art collectors. And it's really no big deal that it was produced by Cindy Sherman as opposed to, say, Man Ray. Yeah. Moving forward to today, uh, a photographer, Paul Melcher, started a debate on the Black Star Rising blog when he was talking about the importance or the unimportance of calling out photographers' genders and and how that affected anybody. He says that it seems that political correctness has now started to reach the shores of the previously sexless island of photography. It appears that some people with a highly developed social conscience want you to know the gender of a photographer whose picture you admire as if it made any difference. And then uh, Melissa Golden, who's a photographer, who we actually worked with at our college newspaper. Yes, we did. Made a public response to Melcher saying, you know, like, essentially the idea that the gender shouldn't matter is true. He's got a good point. But she talks about how when she was fighting her way into the often boys club of professional photography, especially if you look at more veteran figures, it is dominated by men. And she said it took me too long to figure out that drinking massive amounts of alcohol and putting up with sexual harassment were not the tests I had to pass to join the club. And she said, I now know it took me so long because I didn't have a strong senior female photographer or editor willing to take me in and tell me there's another better way. And this kind of brings up the whole question of, you know, like, is feminism still useful? Well, yeah, it is, because we don't live in a society that's free from sexism and we're not living in this gender-equal utopia. So, unfortunately, 
gender does still matter. I mean, I wish that Melcher was right in that it is just a sexless island, as he says. But no. But the debate, it seems like the debate on whether gender matters has been going on forever, and it will continue to do so, because you have people like Princeton Women's Studies and Art and Archaeology professor Carol Armstrong, who says that male and female photographers have always ventured into the same territory, but women do so with more empathy for the subject. Then you have British writers slash critics Griselda Pollock and Janet Wolfe, who asserted that there is no intrinsic feminine or masculine essence, only complex networks of culturally conditioned markers that construct what superficially appears to be coherent gender identity. So essentially what they're saying in the book Photography, A Cultural History by Mary Warner Marion is that there are no gender differences in how men and women approach photography. Right. And that is echoed in a blog post on the News Photographers Association of Canada blog by Renee Blackstone. She interviewed a number of female photojournalists on the question of whether gender differences exist because you do that issue of, oh, well, women have more empathy with their subjects. Women might be able to uh, approach a situation, a more sensitive situation, better than a male photographer could. And some Some of the photojournalists said, yeah, women might be better in situations where, quote unquote, a kind of intimacy is required and a certain woman to woman trust can be developed. But a lot of them said, you know what? There is really no difference. Men and women are both doing social documentary work. And in the same way that women can go into places that men can't, I would say that men can probably go into plenty of places that women can't. And I I don't know. I, I, I have... A little bit of hesitation, just saying that, you know, what women bring to the table are more finely tuned emotions. I think that while, yes, your emotions will influence your art and your work, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that should be, you know, the platform on which we call for equality or progress. Yeah. Well, simply because I would think that veteran male photographers would give no hoots, to quote myself, about your emotion, especially in the workplace. Yeah. And I'm also, I mean, like we're sitting here speaking as not experienced photographers or photojournalists, but, um, you know, it it does make me wonder whether that's really a a useful argument. And I think that's one reason why, if you do talk to a lot of women about this, that there, at the end of the day, there aren't really gender differences in how women and men take pictures, what we see and don't see. I mean, when I worked at the newspaper, I mean, half of our staff, half of our photo staff was men, half was women, and they were all brilliant, but... They weren't. Maybe it's because we were in a metropolitan newspaper and we weren't sending people to Iraq or anything to take mm-hmm. dangerous pictures. But it's like you know, they went to their various fair county fair assignments and and you know criminal trial assignments and took pictures. And I mean, they were all brilliant. It wasn't a case of like we need to send Jackie to this one because she's a girl. We need to send you know Mike to this one because he's a boy. Jackie's going to the baby judging contest. <laughs> Jack's going to the NASCAR race. Go. Um, but numbers wise, though, there are more men involved in photography. Um, according to the National Endowment for the Arts, Artists in the Workforce Survey from 1990 to 2005, 
42.8% of all the people who listed themselves as professional photographers were women, so less than half. But this was also a compelling statistic. 60% of those women were under 35, meaning that men comprise a majority of the veteran successful photographers. So photography is also one area where, you know, women are wondering whether or not there is some kind of off ramp. Maybe it has to do with, like Melissa Golden talked about, not having, you know, the senior editor to encourage her onward, a female mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a question of why in a lot of art schools, Women might be outnumbering men in the student body in terms of who's studying photography, but once they get out, there seems to they they seem to thin out. Yeah. Well, what really thins out is pay for women. Oh no. Because according to this report, there's a major pay gap. The median income for a male photographer is thirty five thousand five hundred dollars. For a woman, it's sixteen thousand three hundred. And I think maybe as a result of the, of a huge pay gap like that, women photographers have really been honing in on certain areas like wedding photography and the family portraiture, um, to which uh, there was an article over at the Grindstone talking about the ghettoization of female photographers in weddings, saying all we can shoot our weddings. It's all people toss us our weddings. Well, I don't think that's true, but you can, I also know that you can make Boku de Bucks working oh, yeah. as a wedding photographer. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. In order to close up that, that income gap, get into wedding photography. But I, I, but I am curious to hear from female photographers out there whether they're, they are instantly assumed to be, you know, if they're, if you're a woman walking around with a camera around your neck, you know, are you just assumed to be on your way to a wedding? Well, you know, you talked about whether there were female role models or mentors in the industry. Fiona Rogers, who started the Firecracker Photographic Grant in 2011 to support women photographers, says that while there seems to me to be an abundance of women studying photography, it would appear that a large percentage leave education and take on administrational, organizational, or nurturing roles within the visual arts. And she goes on to say that Firecracker was established as a way of supporting women photographers and linking them with a wider public and industry audience. Which is good. I mean, it sounds like within the industry, there is a greater effort to link women up with other women, to offer more support. Um, Women are also making strides on their own. This is coming from the British Journal of Photography. Um, It was an article talking about how women are really coming into their own with social portraiture, which was traditionally male-dominated, and they've been scooping up awards recently. The Masters Photographers Association awarded its sole fellowship to photographer Joe DeBanzi. And that's such a big deal when you consider that out of the 65 fellowships ever awarded by MPA, only eight have gone to women. And similarly, Lisa Visser was awarded the British Professional Photographer of the Year Award in 2008. So, I mean, they're, you know, obviously, like, women are, are doing very well at their jobs and climbing up through the ranks. But it seems like maybe it's just we're catching up from such a long legacy. And by we, I mean female photographers, not myself. (laughs) 
Right. I mean, I, I'll take pictures with my iPhone, but um, there have been a lot of sources, not just this British Journal of Photography uh, piece, but a lot of other areas on the Internet are talking about how digital photography, the ease of use, has made it possible for more women to get into photography. And that makes my eyes twitch. Um, there was one comment on a blog I read where this man who was like, look, you know, I'm, I'm young and I don't have a lot of experience, but I'm just saying that maybe from the early days of photography where cameras were highly technical and it was difficult, maybe women just weren't interested. And now that things are digital, women are interested because they just want to take pictures of their kids. And I mean, I pushed my computer out the window after I read that. But that digital photography discussion is something that's going on. And I, I think knowing some of the amazing female photographers that I do, I think that's crap. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, that it, it bring it does bring up, I mean, that's kind of not so benevolent sexism saying that since it's easier, now women want to do that. And I feel like we could do, and listeners, if you have an idea of how we could do this, I think we could do a whole episode on Instagram because, uh-huh. because it is so female dominated. Mm-hmm. Women love it. And it is becoming this huge social media force. Um, and I think it would be interested, interesting to, to look into that more. But yeah, I mean, I, arguments like that make me cringe that, oh, now we're, now we're interested just because it's simple. Men, you enjoy ease of use as well and a good user experience. Okay. So anyway, (laughs) I want to get riled up here. Um, but uh, I hope that we have photographers listening. And again, I know that there were so many notable women behind the camera that we did not have time to talk about. Hopefully I can do like a big blog roundup maybe. Um, unfortunately, the challenging thing about setting up galleries uh, for photography to show women's work is copyright issues. Right. And we ain't going to violate them, but I will do my best to try to find um, pictures that we can show of these women's incredible work. And we haven't even talked very much too about uh, younger contemporary women who are climbing through the ranks as well. Right. So yeah, if you know any of that, please give us a shout. Yeah, and shout out to photographer Lizzie if she's listening to this podcast. Your photos are amazing. And Melissa Golden. Yeah. If you're listening, what up? And all the, all the, all the photographers out there. Send us emails though, uh, momstuffatdiscovery.com. I'll be curious to hear everyone's thoughts on this. And of course, you can find us on Facebook if you'd like to send us a message that way or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And before we get to a couple of your letters, let's take a quick break, Caroline. And then we'll come back. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free. Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Friends Without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends Without the R, Best Fiends. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
So we know, listeners, it's been rough for a lot of people out there, and we've been very open about our experiences with therapy and how it's been so helpful for us in the past and in the present. And because of that, we wanted to highlight a service that we think might be of help to you all, BetterHelp, which offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and to help. You can talk with your counselors in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. And BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas. They can give you access to help that might not be available in your area. And you just have to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with a counselor in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is an affordable option and our listeners get 10% off your first month with a discount code MOMSTUFF. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better H-E-L-P.com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. Back to our letters. I have one here from Madeline talking about cleanliness in same-sex households. She says, I totally agree that men and women don't have innate differences in cleanliness, just culturally imposed differences. I am a bisexual woman, and I have been in monogamous relationships with men and women. In my experience, there is just as much variation within men and women in terms of how clean people are. I have been with clean men, filthy men, clean women, filthy women, etc. However, in my relationships with the opposite sex, there has been that unspoken assumption that I will be cleaning up. This can easily be remedied by dividing chores and letting your boyfriend dude whatever do his chores in his own time. With my same-sex relationships, chore delegation has been smoother since we have both been trained to constantly be thinking about how we look. Luckily, my fiancé and wife-to-be is in the healthy middle ground of the slob OCD continuum. Congratulations, Madeline, and thank you. Well, I've got an email here from someone who would like to remain anonymous because she's writing in about her labiaplasty. She writes, I had a labiaplasty at the age of 15 and it dramatically changed my life for the better. I was born with an enlarged labia menorah that hung out of my vagina and it never bothered me until dreaded puberty hit. The skin got longer and larger and would rub on the inside of my underwear and become irritated. So I got to the point to where I could no longer do any vigorous exercise or wear pants that were tighter than sweatpants. Noticing a drastic change in my life, my mother asked me what was going on, and I finally admitted my problem, and she took me to the gynecologist. I was booked for my labiaplasty soon after and was deeply satisfied with the results. I understand that most women who go through this surgery do it simply for cosmetic reasons, but I thought you should know that some of us out there have done it out of necessity. We don't just talk about it because it can be quite embarrassing and requires a long backstory about our misfit vaginas. I certainly don't share this at parties or even with my closest friends. However, the anonymity of the internet has inspired me to share my surgery story to let you know that I wasn't trying to please some man. I was only horrified by the prospect of wearing sweatpants and walking like an old lady for the rest of my life. So thanks for sharing, because I think that, you know, it's stories like these that are important to help drive home the point that every vagina is a little bit different. (laughs) And with that song, thank you, Caroline. Send us your emails, momstuffatdiscovery.com. You can also Facebook us or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. You can also follow us while you're at it on Tumblr. We're at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And we're now on YouTube. You can watch us. That's right. Go to youtube.com slash stuffmomnevertoldyou and click subscribe if you don't mind. And watch us. We're coming at you three times a week over there. And... 
If you'd like to, you can still visit our website, too. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, at the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.